the challenge is to take the story that Julia just sang so movingly, couple it with another short story, and weave out of them both a single sharp truth. That the two stories go together is clear from who they are. One is the son of David, and the other is the mother of the son of David. And yet she is not his mother because he preceded her by 1,000 years. How can that be? Today's teaching, we'll find out. We continue our mini-series, Not I But Christ, Tales of Humility. Title of the teaching today, Two Halves to One Truth. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we must get both halves right. Just one half is not enough. Give us both halves in this single truth. And may one of the halves become true of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a father and a son. And as it is with fathers and sons, They were close, perhaps a bit too close, given the fact that the life of the father, moral warts and all, became replicated in the life of his sons. And actually, the two sad endings played out on the stage of sacred history. It's the two of them together. Incontrovertible proof of Life's law, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also, how's it go? That shall he also reap. What you sow, you reap. No matter how merciful and gracious God is, it is a law of life far too many times. And so, King David sowed his moral oats. And his sons reaped the baleful harvest. I understand it doesn't seem fair, but be reminded, children are never punished for their parents' sins. But children too often follow their parents' examples. Open your Bible with me, please, to Tragic Tale of Humility number 1. Second Samuel. Find Second Samuel in the Old Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible, it would be in the Pew Bible, page 219, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Tragic. Right off the bat and out of the chute, simply because it comes on the very heels of the king's adultery and murder to secure the wife of his neighbor, Bathsheba. Everything that follows for the rest of 2 Samuel is the baleful harvest being reaped by his kids. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, I'll be in the New King James Version. Whatever translation you have, follow along, please. And after this, Absalom, 
That's David's third boy. Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. Beautiful girl. And Amnon, that's David's first boy. He's the crown prince. And Amnon, by another mother, by the way, than Absalom, so they're stepbrothers. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her and seduced her and raped her and then discarded her as men who use women for pleasure alone so often do. And Absalom, her older brother, is livid with rage. But vengeance is both sweet and patient. And so he waited two long years for the perfect moment. And then Absalom slew the crown prince of Israel, Amnon, and fled in self-imposed exile. Go to the end of chapter 13. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur. That's the home of his grandfather who was king of Geshur. And was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom. For he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Ah, come on. What does this doting father find in his thirdborn? Huh? What is there about the prince that is so magnetic for even dad. Turn the page to chapter 14. Let's find out. Chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no blemish in him. Ever take a gander at GQ magazine? You ladies don't know what GQ magazine is, but uh, we men do. It's Gentleman's Quarterly. It's just a fashion magazine for men. Some of the world's most stunning male models are demonstrating uh, blazers and watches. And Have you been able to figure this out? Why is it that whenever they're advertising cologne, they have to grow three days' worth of stubble and then get their pictures taken? What's up with that? Let's be honest, gentlemen. Ladies aren't listening right now. There are some guys who are so good looking, it's enough to make you sick. Huh? The only thing worse than a man that handsome is a man that knows it. And Absalom knew it. Verse 25 again, now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no blemish in him. Verse 26, and when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. By some estimates, that's close to five pounds. It was a head of hair, to be sure. And obviously, all of Israel gloried in the main and physique of Prince Absalom, whose hair truly went to his head. Vanity. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Vanity, the male weakness. 
Vanity, the female weakness. Vanity, the weakness and downfall of Absalom. And thus it was with all the adulation of Israel puffing up his vanity and enlarging his hat size, Absalom begins to pine for more power. I need another position. I need, I need more. Drop down to chapter 15, look at verse 4. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, oh, 15 verse 4, oh, that I were made judge, read leader, in the land. And everyone who has any suit or any cause would come to me and then I would give him justice in verse 5. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to Absalom that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, verse 6, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king, unsuspecting Father David for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. It was an inside job. The doting father knew absolutely nothing about what was taking place. Second in line to the throne, the young prince quietly stole the hearts of the kingdom. Reminds me of another prince, second in line to the throne perhaps, who just as quietly stole the hearts of the kingdom. Where do you think Absalom got this? Invented it himself? The conceit and the pride? For a moment, let's be reminded of the original sin. Keep your finger right here. We'll come back. But Ezekiel, you've got to see this. They're twins, Lucifer and Absalom. Watch this. Ezekiel chapter 28. That's page 578 in your pew Bible. Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's pick it up in, um, we'll pick it up in verse 11. Ezekiel 28 verse 11. Where did Absalom get all this? The vanity and insanity of pride. Here's where he got it. Okay, chapter 28, verse 11. Moreover, the word, of the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now, it, it feels like we're going to be talking about a king who's alive at the time of Ezekiel. But the moment two lines into this, we know immediately this is no king living in the time of Ezekiel. You'll see. Thus says the Lord God, verse 12, continuing, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Who is this? You were in Eden. Oh, it can't be anybody in the life of Ezekiel. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, wait a minute. Was it, could it be Adam? No. Could it be Eve? No. Somebody else was in Eden. I wonder who that might be. You were in Eden. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So this can't be God. This isn't talking about an uncreated being. It's a being who's been created, who was in the garden of Eden and is not human. Who would this being be? Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers code language. For this single highest creaturely position in the universe, stationed beside the throne of Almighty God, standing next to God Himself, 
You have to be the highest of the high to have that position. That's who you were. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Code language for the physical presence of God. Yeah, you were there. Verse 15. And guess what? You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity, the mystery, the iniquity was found in you. Drop down to verse 17. Here is the Achilles heel of Absalom and this being. Your heart was lifted up because of your what? What does it read? Because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze upon you. Lucifer, Absalom, two princes, two immense tragedies brought down by the vanity and insanity of pride. How did God put it here? They corrupted their wisdom for the sake of their splendor. Because mark it down, ladies and gentlemen, self, the self-delusion of self-love is self-destructive. Destroys both the mind, destroys the mind and the soul. Narcissus. You ever heard of Narcissus? Greek mythology told a tale about a young man. A young man who caused the death of the goddess Echo by spurning her love. Killed her by ignoring her. So that the god Nemesis, and you hear, the, we use the phrase, uh, the word Nemesis. The god Nemesis caused the young man to fall in love with his own image, reflected and mirrored in the pool of a forest one day. Put the picture on the screen. He was taking a walk and he came across the pool and he looked out. Hey, who might that be? And he fell in love with the image reflected in the water. So in love was Narcissus with his own image that he pined away beside that pond until he died. And because of that little myth, we have a word in English called narcissism. Let's put it on the screen. Narcissism. How does the dictionary define it? Excessive admiration for or fascination with oneself. Self-love. The infantile stage of development in which the self is the object of one's erotic interest. Also, the persistence of the stage into later years. Vanity, narcissism, Absalom, Lucifer. You and me, it doesn't matter. Self-love is self-deluding and it is always self-destroying. Always it destroys us. Because in the kingdom of God, hasn't it ever been proven true? Pride goeth before a fall. He who exalts himself will be humbled. As the fall of Lucifer and Absalom, the fall of you, the fall of me, has so tragically and painfully confirmed, pride always goes before a fall. Self-love. Self-destroys by overreaching self. And so there was war in heaven and there was war in Israel. Absalom and his loyal troops now march on Jerusalem, just like Lucifer did, marching on his father in Jerusalem, where Lucifer's father was. They march on Jerusalem. David and his royal entourage flee just before the rebel arrives. And then get a load of this. This is awful. To prove the depths of no shame that self-love boasts. Absalom brings his father's concubines and in plain view of a gasping public, he sleeps with all of them on the roof of the palace. Now there's nothing left of dad in my kingdom. 
that I do not possess. So stupid is ego that he immediately gathers his forces and pursues King David. Go back to where you had your finger a moment ago. Chapter 18. David has fled to the east of Jerusalem. They've crossed the Jordan. They are east of Jordan. And in that day, the forested woods were thick. Not today. Oh, no, not today. In fact, read this. This is, uh, this is chapter 18. Pick it up in verse 18. The two forces, father and son, are battling. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside. Chapter 18, verse 8, 2 Samuel. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Isn't that something that just, just sucked them up? Obviously, the tide of the battle has turned, and Absalom is fleeing. Verse 9. Notice what happens here. Then Absalom met the servants of David. An advanced guard, an advanced posse is moving its way through the forest. Absalom sees them turn around 180 degrees. And he flees. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Now Absalom rode on a mule, the symbol of royalty. I'm the king now. Big mistake. Absalom rode on a mule and the mule galloped under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree and his head caught in the terebinth so he was left hanging between heaven and earth and the mule which was under him just kept on running. It's what they call poetic justice. When your flouted strength becomes your fatal weakness. The hair that Absalom worshipped hung him. Joab comes on the scene. Verse 14, then Joab said, I cannot linger with you when he took three spears and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And the ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people, no sense in fighting, a day longer. And they took Absalom, verse 17, and cast him into a very large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Those would be the, that would be the army of Absalom. Now, notice verse 18. Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it is called Absalom's monument. You want to know what the genuine monument is to that vain prince? The genuine monument is a broken mirror. And there's no worse bad luck than a broken mirror. Tale of humility. Number two. Absalom was the son of David. She was the mother of the son of David. And that is all. That is all they had in common. For all that he was, she was not. For all that he was not, she was. Turn in your Bible to the Gospel of St. Luke. Find Luke, will you? The Gospel, chapter 1. Luke 1. Tale of humility. Number two. Back to back. What a stunning contrast. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In your pew Bible, this would be page 688. Now in the sixth month. Sixth month of what? Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant. Elizabeth's the aged lady, married to an even older man. 
Couldn't have kids. Angel said, you're going to have kids. She's six months into her pregnancy now. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, by the way, talking about poetic justice. Gabriel stepped into a vacated position in the kingdom of heaven. Guess who had been in the position before him? The fallen Lucifer. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city, a little backwoods, backwater village named Nazareth. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed, even more formal than our engagement, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, she's in a house somewhere, we're not told where, he's coming in. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, hail, greeting, some translations. In the Latin it reads, ave. From whence comes our word Ave, the, the, the phrase Ave, Maria. It's not a sacred phrase, that just means greetings, Maria, Ave. Hey, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Hey, I've got to ask you a question. What was it that would possibly make this teenage virgin girl so attractive to the God of the universe that when he looks on the planet and he says, I got to pick a mother, I have to pick my own mother, he picks her. What is there about her? Uh, just a handful of clues in uh, what, what Gabriel has announced to her. He says, oh, highly favored one, the young girl is called. Highly favored. In fact, look at this, Psalm 5, verse 12. When God favors somebody, what does it say about that somebody? Uh, Psalm 5, 12, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround her as with a shield. She must have been a righteous young woman. Gabriel calls her highly favored, and the only people God highly favors are those who are righteous. You ask, is there such a thing as a righteous teenager today? Glad you asked. Yes, there is. Oh, I have met them. Yes, there are. And I'd like to say to all the teenagers listening right now, don't you ever let anyone insinuate to you that in order to be normal, you can't be a virgin. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. Remain what God has called you to be. Highly favored one. Righteous teenager that you are. Don't you worry about, about the drumbeat of the fallen society around us. Gabriel says, how highly favored. And then he says, the Lord is with you. Can you imagine? God had to find somebody to spend his time with. And before he's even impregnated her, God has been hanging around the girl. What kind of a girl is this that God just loved being with? And by the way, who would you rather have with you than God himself? She had him. Unbeknownst to her, she's just living a normal life as a teenager. She doesn't know that the God of the universe has been tracking her. Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among all women. Hey, by the way, he is not saying, now, you win the beauty pageant. He's not saying, I find you at the top of the dean's list. He's not saying, you have the checking account that beats them all. No, 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 no. He's talking about a moral quality here in this young little girl. And he says, blessed are you. Oh, don't, don't get to thinking she isn't bright. As we note in a moment from her response to Gabriel, she has a deep intellect. But blessed are you 
Because of your moral character, you've been chosen, girl. We went down to Huntsville, Alabama a few weeks ago. Pastor Oliver got married. Hallelujah. I'm here to tell you the wedding went without a hitch. (laughs) Praise God. We're going to introduce them to you just about four weeks from now. They're down in the islands honeymooning for a while. Anyway, uh, it was a lovely wedding. We had another day. So we wanted to see what's known in Huntsville as the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. And I'm telling you, we toured that. We were blown away by the immense complexity of the technology behind the Apollo rockets and the space shuttle. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, you can be sure that nobody comes walking off the street and says, Hey, I'm going to be a part of this mission. Can I go tomorrow? Are you kidding? For a mission that complex... You have to be vetted and screened and trained and coached for months and years. And then we'll take you on. You know why? Because we can't afford to lose this mission. We can't put this mission in the hands of someone who will let us down at the end. When they pick Mary, the Virgin of Nazareth, she has been vetted and screened and coached and trained for the highest maternal mission in the history of the human race. Become the mother that God picks through whom to be born. Mercy. Blessed are you. You have been chosen. Verse 29. But when she saw him, Now get this, watch this. But when she saw him, Gabriel, she was troubled at his saying. And consider what manner of greeting this was. Isn't this amazing? She doesn't fall on her face. She doesn't doesn't panic and run from the room. She's thinking. She's thinking it through. She's evaluating everything he said so far. And he hasn't said much. Now comes the bombshell. Then the angel said to her, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The real Son of David's coming straight through you, girl. Verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Something, time out. She has thought through this. She has tracked Gabriel's announcement line by line. And she says, Pause, please. Can't do it. I've never slept with a man. She says, How? By the way, Zechariah, in the preceding story, he also says how, but his how is a huh. You haven't seen my wife. You don't know how old she is. Both raised the question how. His was a huh. Hers was a how. I've never slept with anybody. You go, Mary. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born in your tummy will be called the Son of God. Verse 36, In fact, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, your cousin, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For remember this, Mary, with God, nothing will be impossible. And now comes the clincher. These are the seeds of Mary's greatness. Verse 38, then Mary said, Oh, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, 
Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel's gone. She said, yes, mission accomplished. Gabriel's gone. No need hanging around now. The girl said yes. Let me tell you what she said in the Greek. In the Greek, she said, here I am, a female slave of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the only person who would ever call herself or himself a slave is a person of humility. The rest of us spent our lives proving we are not that. She begins her life with the admission, I'm nothing but a female slave for Almighty God, for Almighty God. And so when Mary bursts into song that Julia, and by the way, you didn't know this, but Julia was singing the Magnificat. You might have picked up that. She sang it word for word from the King James. Beautifully, beautiful rendition. Never heard that rendition of the Magnificat. Mary breaks into song, and I want you to note that the song is really an ode to humility. It's a hymn. A hymn of humility. Drop down to verse 46. And Mary said, Mary sang, Oh, my soul magnifies. Magnificat comes from that word. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For He has regarded the lowly state. I am nothing but a female slave. He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Notice who the focus is on. It's all on external Externally focused. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him. Verse 50, from generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. See the contrast here. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And verse 52, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Little old me in the hands of Almighty God. The Magnificat is an ode to humility. And wouldn't you know it, the very words that Mary sings in this song, when her boy grows up, he will weave her words into the most quoted line in all the Gospels. More than any other line, Christ will use these words. A single line that tells the truth about two tales of humility. In the first half of the line, we find the tale of Absalom. In the second half of the line, we find the tale of Mary. That line is in Luke, and so just turn over to 1411. One line used more times than any other line in the teachings of Christ. By the way, in its various forms, this line is used 26, 26 times in the Scripture. What's the big deal about this line? I'll tell you what the big deal is. It's because of original sin. God's response to original sin, unoriginal vanity, unoriginal insanity of pride. God's response to original sin. Here it is. Jesus, red letters in your Bible. Perhaps chapter 14, verse 11, for whoever exalts himself will be what? And whoever humbles himself will be what? Call it out to me. Will be exalted. Take your study guide and fill it in, please. The one line Jesus taught more than any other line. Fill it in, please. He who exalts himself will be humbled. And then write the name Absalom. Write the name Absalom, will you? And she who humbles herself will be exalted, right in the name Mary. Lucifer and Absalom set out to exalt themselves. They are tragically humbled. Mary and Jesus set out to humble themselves, and they are gloriously exalted. There you have it. 
a moral play. Two stories, one truth. So what does it mean to humble ourselves? I mean, how can I be more like Mary and less like Absalom? How can I be more like Jesus and less like Satan? Is there a secret to humbling ourselves? Two strategies, a twin strategy in Luke. I'll give these two to you and then I'll sit down. Write them down. Strategy number one, jot it down, please. Humble yourself before others and show it. What does it mean to humble myself? Here's what you do. Humble yourself before others and show it. In fact, this comes right at the tail end of a story that Jesus has already told. By the way, it's good counsel. This is, this is the month of weddings, isn't it? So here's the counsel from Jesus. When you go to a wedding reception, never get up close to the head table. Don't you dare sit up where you want to be right there where the action is when the cake is cut. Forget it, Jesus says, because once you sit down and you get the goblet dirty from drinking, the maitre d' will come along and say, didn't you read the little name tag there? That's not your place. You're way back there in the back. Jesus says that's humiliating. He said, when you go to a wedding reception, always sit in the back. If you're supposed to be up closer, they'll come and get you. There's nothing like going up. Nothing worse than going down. And then Jesus makes the point, for whoever humbles himself will be humbled. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the question, Jesus. What do you, what do you mean? What are you trying to tell me to do? What does it mean to humble myself? Ah, at the, it means whenever you're given a choice. Okay, here you go. Whenever you're given a choice, take the lowest seat. Take the lowest seat. You say, Dwight, I don't know what that means. Take the lowest seat. Okay, let me put it in other language. Whenever you're given a choice, take the smallest piece. Your favorite pie is out. I don't know what about you, but when something that I really enjoy is brought to the table, I, like a hawk, watch the dissemination of those pieces. <laughs> don't you do the same? Come on, don't you act like you're, you're holier than me. <laughs> Although I know you are. Take the smallest piece. You say, what's, what's, what's happening there? You're forcing yourself. You're humbling yourself. You're automatically saying, I'll take that little one right there. It's probably healthier for you anyway. Take the smallest piece. Take the last place. Take the smallest piece. Wash the dirtiest feet. Volunteer for the most menial of tasks. The worst of chores. Hey, listen, guys, I know not, we don't have a janitor around here. I hate to do this, but would one of you, who here would be willing to clean the toilets? You'd be the first hand to go up. I'll do it. You know nobody wants to do it. Go ahead and do it. To humble yourself means to take the action. Take the action first. Here's a, here's a concept. Vote for your opponent. Uh, can you imagine what American politics would be today if we voted for our opponents? I mean, come on. How civil the campaigns would be. I didn't know, by the way, that you could vote for yourself when I went off to academy for the first time. So I ran for an election in the student association. And I voted for the other guy and found out I lost by two votes, his and mine. I didn't know you were supposed to vote for yourself. I thought you were supposed to vote for somebody else. Now I know. Oh, I don't lose now. <laughs> See, humbling, humbling myself, humbling yourself means you go out of the way to do it countercultural. Do the opposite of what's expected. Build up your competitor every chance you get. You're in business. You got a guy down the street outselling you. Celebrate it. Are you an institution? You got a guy down the street out selling you? Celebrate it. I'm making a point. Sometimes we are so preoccupied in building ourselves up 
and making sure we have the top position in the ranking that we get humbled. Because he who exalts himself always gets humbled. But she who humbles herself will be exalted. Build up your competitor. Better yet, quit having a competitor. Quit keeping score. I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody. Until last service. The Lord was dealing with me one day and He says, You know what, boy? you got a problem with envy. I said, Get out of here. I don't have envy. I'm not jealous of anybody. He said, Oh, yes, you are. How can I be jealous of anybody? He says, Because look at your heart. Every time that name is mentioned, every single time, you freeze up. Why are you freezing up? Because you're jealous. You know, God can humble you very privately, fortunately. But it is humbling to realize. It was humbling for me. I'm ashamed to tell you that there's been somebody that I've been jealous of. Why is he always so good? And why am I not so good? We do crazy thinking when we're envious. And one day, God finally said to me, you know what, boy? Here's how you're going to deal with it. You're going to force yourself every time that name comes up to say, to be the first to jump up and say, man, have you ever seen somebody who can do it like that? Wow, I am so impressed. Hey, guys, I am no, I am no paragon of virtue, but I found that worked. Now, whenever the name comes up, I'm first there. Hey, wow. Can, and you know what? It's just kind of dissipated. It's just gone. I mean, who cares? Let me be on the, let me be on the bandwagon to cheer him on professionally. Build up your competitor. Quit having a competitor. Don't keep score. Angie and Chris Schuler gave me a delightful little book called The Go-Giver. It's a morality play about how to succeed in business. They gave it to me just about four weeks ago. And in one scene, an old sage passes along to the young upstart in business this piece of wise counsel. Listen to this. Stop keeping score. Don't keep track. Watch out for the other guy. Watch out for his interest. Forget about 50-50, son. The only winning proposition is 100%. Just give yourself to the other guy. Who cares who he is? Let him win. Quit keeping score. And how do you win now? There's no score. See, we keep the score up here. Give up your place in the line. Give up your day off for service. Give up your life for somebody else. Ladies and gentlemen, the whole point that Jesus is making here is that we have to do something. We have to act. We have to humble ourselves. Never pray this prayer. You will not find it in the Bible. Never pray this prayer. Oh God, humble me. You'll regret the day you did. He already is keeping close track to you. Trust me. He knows when a little extra nudge is exactly what you need. You can count on that. Trust me as well. Never pray the prayer, humble me. Instead, pray the prayer, oh God, let me humble myself before you. That prayer is laced through Scripture. Humble yourself. Take the action. Do the work. Don't ask God to do it. Don't you dare. Just take a deep breath. Humble yourself. All right, there are two steps, then I'll sit down. Step number one is humble yourself before others and show it. Step number two is humble yourself before God and mean it. And the key word there is mean it. The other place that this line appears in Luke is chapter 18. So just go four pages over to Luke chapter 18. And this is a story about the two worshipers and the, the, the guy that walks at the front of the church for worship that Sabbath stands up and he prays to himself. That's the way Jesus tells the story. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other reprobates. 
in this little village of mine, I tithe, I'm great in stewardship, I fast, I watch my diet, I worship on the right day. Thank you, oh God, for who I am. And Jesus said in the back of that same church, that very same Sabbath, there was a man who was so shattered by his guilt that he could only sob into the sleeve of his sports jacket. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Then the point. Here it is, verse 14, Luke 18. I tell you, this man in the back of the church went down to his house Justified, declared righteous by God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself, quoting his mother's song, he who humbles himself will be exalted. What does it mean to humble ourselves before God and mean it? I leave you with these quotations in your study guide. These are so choice. You have them. You don't have to fill a single blank in. Just keep the quotations. Christ's Object Lessons comments on this parable with these words. Take a look in your study guide. The lips may express. I thought this was prescient. The lips may express a poverty of soul that the heart does not acknowledge. We are good up here. We are terrible down here. So I may be saying, oh, I'm so humble. Yes, of course I am. Of course. While speaking to God of poverty of spirit, the heart may be swelling with the conceit of its own superior humility and exalted righteousness. See, you can't fool God. You can fool everybody else in your own home, but you can't fool God. In one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. Circle it. We must behold Christ. Track Jesus. It is ignorance of Him that makes men and women so uplifted in their own righteousness. When we contemplate His purity and excellence, we shall see our own hopeless, we shall see our, weak, our own weakness and poverty and defects as they really are. We shall see ourselves lost and hopeless, clad in garments of self-righteousness like every other sinner. We shall see that if we are ever saved, it will not be through our own goodness, but through God's infinite grace. What do you say to that? Huh? Self, now this is choice, self to the publican appeared nothing but shame. Thus it has been seen by all who seek God. I am ashamed. Self, by faith, faith that renounces all self-trust, the needy suppliant is to lay hold upon infinite power. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? And now here's what I want to send home with you. There's a little prayer, just a few sentences later, that follows. This is the prayer. You want to pray this prayer with me every day? You can. Here's the prayer. Listen to this. It's in that next uh, quotation. No outward observance can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of self. But no man can empty himself of self. How can self? Hey, self, cast, cast self out. Can I pick myself up and throw myself out? You can't do it. It's impossible. That's true. No man or woman can empty herself of self. We can only consent for Christ. To accomplish the work, then, now here comes the prayer. Oh boy, this would be great to memorize, wouldn't it? Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is Thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for Thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak Unchristlike self, mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. Isn't that some? How did Jesus put it? He who exalts himself will be humbled, and she who humbles herself will be exalted. Once upon a time, there was a prince and a woman and a God. 
The prince exalted himself, and he was humbled. The teenage virgin humbled herself, and she was exalted. And the God? The God was also the son of David. But the God humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name under heaven and on earth and under the earth. So why on earth would we not, just like Mary, just like Jesus, why would we not humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord? 